Hey guys, I'm Chris. And I'm Mike. And this is No Limits, a Mitch Rap podcast. So how you doing today, Mike? I'm good. I am ready to get into the books. We've been talking about them so much, been reading for a few weeks now, and just bursting at the seam to to talk about them with you. Yeah, me too. I, um, I'm glad that this was a fun read. I'm, I'm glad we're able to be talking about this. Um, I know I said to Caroline that I was like, I wish you had contacted me last year when I was reading these for the first time, but it's actually kind of better because rereading them has highlighted new, new things that I didn't catch when I first read them. So, yeah, I don't know if um, any other time would have worked too well for me, but we're <laughs> quarantined now. Plenty of time to uh, get going on the podcast here with you. Yeah. And the Thank first you. time I read it was probably, like I said in the last episode, as a as a teenager. So I definitely don't think I was ready back then. Were podcasts around? I don't. I mean, I remember uh, the first iPod coming out. So definitely not because iPods were all music. I had a pod. I remember listening to podcasts in high school. They podcasts have kind of gone away, and then they've now come back. And that's I think feel like a lot of times that's how people are consuming their news really is through podcasts now yeah now for sure because just, of how easy it is to i definitely listened to some podcasts in high school but i, I don't know what it was they definitely were. all about radio shows and sitting there with my cassette recorder holding up the speaker to the radio trying to record z100 in the z morning zoo nice. and uh you know i can't remember any digital content before you know mp3s but that was all originally music Right, you know, the age of Napster and the first iPods, but here we yeah. are. Hey, I remember listening to like This American Life, I think, as a kid every Sunday. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. That makes sense. All right, so yeah. what are we covering today, Chris? <clears throat> so today we're going to dive into part one. So before we get into that, just want to talk about the order of the books. So we'll be reading these books in the publication order. And some questions that came up when we were talking is like, you know, how should we read these books? Should we read them in publication date, chronological? Because there are a couple of books that dive into Mitrap's backstory, uh, which aren't published until well later on in the series. And so what do you think? Well, what's the benefit of reading something like this? Yeah, what do you think? Almost universally speaking, I'm a traditionalist. I think it best to reflect the author's creativity and the journey they went on, whether at the outset that was intentional or not, if they knew the series would shape up that way, most likely I think they didn't. But I think it does make sense to go publication order and we go through Vince Flynn's career as a writer and really see it ebb and flow and take shape. And I, I'm actually kind of disappointed that so many new readers to Mitch Rapp may begin with American Assassin. Yeah. As you hinted, his backstory that comes out. Because I feel like, whether purposefully or unintentionally, that backstory of Mitch only came out way later into Vince Flynn's career. And so I like honoring what original readers went through. It's kind of like Star Wars. I I recommend to everybody, A New Hope, the original Star Wars, Episode Four, whatever you want to call it, that's where you begin. Absolutely, 100%. So I guess I'm just a, a originalist through and through. Oh, the Constitution, it. too. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting, because I actually, when I read these books the first time, I did exactly what you said, starting with, with American Assassin and then going to Kill Shot. I read them in chronological order. And 
I can see how by doing that you lose like you learn a lot about Mitch from the from the get go, and then whereas if you don't do that, then that gets built up, and then it, you kind of appreciate it more once you get to that point. So I it's I would now like that I did the opposite that I don't like. I would recommend to people going forward um, to follow how Vince Flynn you know is and then you can actually really see his progression as a writer because I think we'll get into this later how there's some problems we have with this book in terms of you know some of the the writing of it and you know you could definitely see how this is definitely a first publication it's good but yeah and so today we're going to talk about chapters one through 13 they were jam-packed with material lots to get through lots of action as well it's a good blend of backstory and meeting new characters but also at least two or three really good action-packed scenes that highlight Flynn's talent for doing that. Yeah, I think that's that's a highlight we're going to notice throughout the book, throughout the whole series, is when he has those chapters that are focused on you know, military precision, technicality, different operational procedures, those are written very well. Mm-hmm. And they're, they're very good. They're ob- he obviously does a lot of research for these things. So, All right, let's get into it. Cool. So, Chris, how about you give us the summary that's included on Goodreads? Sure. So, Goodreads says, Taking America back, one politician at a time. In one bloody night, three of Washington's most powerful politicians are executed with surgical precision. Their assassins then deliver a shocking ultimatum to the American government, set aside partisan politics, and restore power to the people. No one, they warn, is out of their reach, not even the president. A joint FBI-CIA task force reveals that the killers are elite military commandos, but no one knows exactly who they are or when they will strike next. Only Michael O'Rourke, a former U.S. Marine and freshman congressman, holds a clue to the violence, a haunting incident in his own past with explosive implications for his own country, dot, dot, dot. Good. I got I to gotta be honest, I was hanging just like um, the readers at the end of the summary through a lot of the book, trying to figure out what the different connections are and who knows who and who has uh, past clues that might help solve this thing. Right. So on Goodreads, the readers have given the book a 4.3 out of 5. That was with about 31,000 ratings from the public. So it's a pretty good sample size. What would you say, Chris, about that 4.3 out of 5? pretty good yeah it's pretty good when i look at those kind of things if anything's below a four maybe a three nine if someone uh recommended it to me i won't i won't, generally won't rate it <laughs> so you know yeah, anything i'm the same, same way too yeah yeah well we'll share our personal ratings at the end of part three so that will be after we've done a full review of the entire book and you'll get to hear what chris and i thought uh how we would rate it out of five stars All right, let's get into our first impressions. Great entry into the genre of political thrillers. Kudos to someone who was just getting their feet wet as an author, someone who couldn't even get a book deal, but stuck with it and eventually got this thing to market. Uh, Well done. Hats off. I was really excited. Vince Flynn did a ton of research, which was pretty cool, on the Washington, D.C. area, being someone who's lived here for over a decade now. And I know you, Chris, grew up in the area. I just thought that was fantastically well done. It really 
made the action quite concise. You could picture everything that was going on and it was obviously more exciting if you know the area because Flynn described it in great detail. Right. I think that that was a really standout point, the research that went into this, especially the locational research. And as you said, you know, I grew up in Northern Virginia. I went to high school in DC, a couple blocks from the Capitol building. So reading any book in the series where they go into, you know, some area, Northern Virginia, DC, Maryland, it's a little nostalgic for me. So I like that. I enjoy that reading. And, you know, I would find myself, as I think you, you mentioned off, off recording that you looked up some of these places, you know, to verify that they were what they were, that was there. And, you know, he, he did his research on that. And I, I think overall, like you said, a pretty good book overall, a good starter to, if someone wants to get into this, this genre. I did have some problems with, I think I said this before, I think you could tell that this was his first time writing at points. I've read worse, a lot worse books, so it wasn't atrocious, but you could just, you know, some of, there were some qualms that I had, and we'll get into that into the third section of, of this podcast, but as a whole, I think that he did a good job with not being overly, too overly technical. I've noticed that in some of the other works that I've read in this genre, they try to be all, very much so like Tom Clancy, and you know, Tom Clancy is, is Tom Clancy. Don't try to copy Tom Clancy, you know, <laughs> I, I feel you just be your own self. And he, so he wasn't, wasn't too technical at times, which I, if you, you get really into the technicalities of things, it could really bog down the reading. I like how you brought up Tom Clancy because you know who else brought up Tom Clancy? Vince Flynn. In his dedication, we get a really unique list of authors. So Let's hear your reaction, Chris. I'm going to read the dedication in the very beginning of Term Limits. To Tom Clancy, Robert Ludlum, Leon Uris, J.R.R. Tolkien, and Ernest Hemingway for inspiring me to live my dreams. Besides having no idea who Leon Uris is, or if I'm saying the name correct, as listeners scream into their microphones at me, um, <laughs> what's your reaction to the list of, or at least other authors that we know? Well, he picked two of like probably the best known thriller writers, political or CIA assassin thriller writers in Robert Ludlum and Tom Clancy. I love both of their series. Um, and then he picks two, you know, very prominent literary giants in mm -hmm. Tolkien and and Hemingway. Probably should have looked up who Leon Weiros was before this podcast, but <laughs> I didn't. But yeah, that's a that's a great great pick because you know he has sort of the genre and very important authors there so that's that's pretty good so i was just a little thrown off by the dedication to these giants as you so correctly said because often this genre falls short of ever reaching that level of greatness or that level of art i would say in some ways a lot of these books are pop fiction they're things for the masses, their entertainment, I wouldn't necessarily categorize them as high art like I would Tolkien or a, or a Hemingway. So I do, interesting, but I really love how no matter what you are going to do with your talents, you could still be inspired by someone of that magnitude. And it's not about recreating them, but it's about being inspired by them and the path that they laid out. So right. yeah, I, I love this mix. Some of the things that I see some of these authors in political thrillers do is they don't do enough research into the military background or they, they don't do enough research in terms of like the location that they pick. They want to just pick Paris or they want to pick, you know, the Middle East and they've never been there or, you know, they don't know 
they don't talk to people in the military and then it just comes off as you know when people read these things like me or you we don't really know we know locations um but we don't really know the military backgrounds so we read it and we're like okay whatever but if i feel like a lot of people reading this are people in the military people in the government and they're gonna if they immediately pick up something and someone describes a, a counter-strike that would never actually happen or that's not how it would happen then they're just going to put down the book and not continue reading you know so I found it interesting that most of these books have uh, what is known, I had to look this up, what is known as an epigraph or a prologue quote. And so I just wanted to go into what that one was for this one. And it's a quote by Thomas Jefferson from the Declaration of Independence. And he also brings up this quote later on in, in one of the chapters. And it's, it, so this quote comes right after the line of about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And it goes, Governments are instituted among men that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. It is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for the future security. That whole thing is kind of embodying what the assassins are probably going for in this, in this section, and that's why he picked it. That's a pretty powerful quote uh, from a very powerful man Thomas Jefferson. And so what do you think about him bringing in this line from the uh, Declaration of Independence and then the assassin sort of using this as their justification going forward? My first reaction was Declaration of Independence. Was it an easy way out? But later on, I do see the connection that Flynn was trying to make to the storyline. Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And so in the first part of the book, we're introduced to three main plot lines that are told from a couple of different perspectives. Um, and then we have, so we have the assassins plot line that we're exposed to right off the bat in their safe house in rural Maryland. We have sort of the white house and political figures that is told from two different camps. We have president Steven and, and Garrett and Nance and all their minions. And then we have, you know, Michael O'Rourke and all the people that are involved in his life. And then sort of the final I guess storyline that we're exposed to in these chapters is from the intelligence community and, and how the FBI and CIA, what they're going to be doing to solve the case of the assassinations that we're going to be talking about in, in a couple seconds. So I thought it was interesting how it's clearly defined in like three different areas, how this is going to go. You got the politicians, the military, and then, or the intelligence community, and then obviously our, our assassins, our bad guys. Let's get into it. Let's get into the, the story. Chapter one to open with the assassin as the focal point of that beginning. We see a blonde haired assassin, believe it at that, in a cabin in the woods, and he's burning documents. They seem to be related to prior missions. The text is very clear up front that the missions this assassin was involved in included a lot of killings, a lot of death but never on United States territory and never against United States personnel, either military or civilian. And I thought just fantastic writing. I love this line. An assassin of assassins, exporter of death, trained and funded by the U.S. government. That line lights out. That's great. That was a great, great start to the novel. And that whole chapter just sort of sets, I like when they, you start off not with your main character, but with like your villain or I think it's a tool that a lot of these genre authors like to use where you, you get, you dive into the plot right away. I like that. 
And so right after that, we then jump to chapters two through four, where we learn about this important budget that's coming up. And, you know, we get a lot of sort of back and forth, the political backgrounds. Uh, it very much reminded me of like an episode of uh, House of Cards or The West Wing um, with these different characters and, you know, who they are, how they interact with each other. And we, we meet for the first time, uh, our Michael O'Rourke, who's a freshman congressman. And I thought it was pretty ballsy that he's willing to stand up to the president. And uh, like, what did, what did you think of that scene where, you know, he's really doesn't like this whole rural electrification administration and you know, he just hangs up on the president. I thought, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah. I think, I think to understand it a little better, you have to back up where you see the inner workings of the white house gearing up. They're ready to pull out all the stops because this budget vote proposed by the white house is going to be extremely close and so they're at the stage of needing to call every last person they can think of, and they're going to have to start doing a little arm twisting. They're going to have to throw their weight around and let you know, the younger, vulnerable congressmen know that this vote may define the future of their political career and support from the White House and the party. And so, yeah, I think in that context, pretty, pretty brave, pretty badass of O'Rourke to uh, get a call from the president and stick to his guns cut the five million, you'll have my vote and eventually hangs up on the president and isn't going to be intimidated. So yeah, I, I like that. Right. And then this, this leads us right into the whole twist your arm scene, right? Yes. Where they send their, you know, big brass on the Hill, their political pushers to his office. And I found this really interesting that he turns on his dictaphone. There's some like different uh, things that really dates this novel. Whenever they use the term digital phone, I don't know, I don't know when people stopped using that term. Did I turn on my digital phone? But I, I, every time I, I, it hits something in my brain when I hear that or read that. But yeah, he turns on his dictaphone and this guy, I'm blanking on his name, but he has a very, Vanelli. Ita- Vanelli has a very Italian name. You know, he's like, I don't know, he calls him Mikey. He's like, I don't know who the you think you are. <laughs> like, you're going to do this or you're, yep. you're going to, your career is going to be over. I think he threatens him or blackmails yeah. him. Yeah. He says that essentially that he'll end his career. And well, we know that O'Rourke doesn't really care about his career because he doesn't want to be here anymore. He doesn't want to be a part of this establishment, but he then does a badass thing where he literally twists the arm of the arm twister and (laughs) says, you know, get the hell out of my office, which I I thought was a pretty cool scene. Yeah. And we've already heard that O'Rourke on the phone told the president, I don't care about a second term. Um, I'm not running again, setting himself up as the antithesis of these career politicians, you know, and the careerism in Washington of just sticking around and getting a paycheck instead of actually doing the work that the constituents want. We then cut back to the White House and we see how the Stevens administration is handling this and his top two, which is Stu Garrett, the chief of staff, and Mike Nance, who I believe is the national security advisor. And they're all trying to figure out how to handle this budget and what to do with congressmen like O'Rourke, who are who are still opposing them, that they just see as bugs that they can crush. And Stu Garrett pulls out a card that he pulls out quite a bit throughout the book, the press card. He wants to go to the media and he wants to immediately get the president out in front of the cameras. He seems to see that as a, as a panacea how the media can be twisted to solve any problem and whatever you need done, you can get someone in journalism to take your side. And so he puts Stevens in a press conference 
to go out and say, we have enough votes, we're going to win. And he gives them very specific instructions on which questions to take from the press pool. And then after a few lightweight back and forth, the president is looking big and strong. He looks to be convincing people that his budget is, is strong and, and going to pass until he ignores Garrett's advice. And he sees a young female journalist sitting in the foreign press section. And so he thinks, let's get off the budget topic. Let's take an easy breezy question from the foreign press. This young inexperienced writer calls on her and it turns out she's got the goods. She knows that the president just got hung up on by a freshman congressman, basically willing to tell him, go shove it. You in the White House can go shove it. And uh, the president is flabbergasted, doesn't know how to handle the question. Obviously, as we see a lot in this book, Garrett clams up. <laughs> Garrett immediately sends out the press secretary to uh, shuffle him off the stage and say, no more time for questions and get him out of there. What do you think about this whole scene in the press room? I, I, it was interesting. And I, I think it highlights something that I wanted to bring up this, this whole point of like, how do we feel about President Stevens? And we can also how do we feel about his chief of staff, Stu Garrett, who I think is an absolute you know, piece of whatever. But I think Flynn very subtly shows us that President Stevens is like, I don't know, sort of this very aloof politician. He doesn't really, he just goes with what Garrett says and you know, a little bit of a misogynist. Uh, they sort of, at one point, you know, Garrett just blows off their female press secretary, the Ann Monker character, uh, said some some thing, comments about her. And then in, the, in his description of like why he chooses uh, who happens to be O'Rourke's girlfriend, uh, Liz. Liz Scarlatti, future wife, and who actually, remember Michael and Liz show up in one of the later books. She's pregnant during that. So I, I remember that when I was reading this part. You know, he, he says something about her physique or whatever, and th that's why he decides to call on her. And just like that, that just shows like uh, his personality and, you know, what he thinks. There were a few strange references, and it made me think something along the lines of misogynism or how these characters are being portrayed by Flynn and the dynamic with the female uh, staff, both the press secretary, a couple of other interns. And yeah, it was a little off putting, but I think it defines and further plays into the persona of Stevens as a coward. Not only a political coward, just listening to Stu Garrett and doing what he wants, but also just a personal uh, coward. And what you mentioned about in the press room really made me think of West Wing. I, I don't know if you're a fan or we have some fans listening, but they also in that show have a female press secretary, but who's highly, highly qualified. Uh, she's one of the most savvy and intelligent on the staff. But there are a number of scenes where they also, just like the president in term limits, sidelines Monker, his press secretary. They also sideline C.J. Craig in the West Wing. And I just thought it was an interesting parallel because in West Wing, they at least do a very good job of describing how you don't want the press secretary to really be in the know and to have all the cards because she might have to go out there and tell a lie. And if she knew the truth about things, particularly national security, she might be in a position forced to lie for her job, which could lead to a lot of legal um, problems, you know, if subpoenas come down the road. And so they leave CJ Craig out on purpose, nothing personal. It's purely professional uh, to, to get out of some legal possible double jeopardy situations where here, why are they leaving the press secretary out? 
it's completely misogynistic. It's personally, they don't think she can handle the job. They, they even have a couple of wisecracks about her. So I just thought that big difference between the real inner workings of the West Wing, or at least how it's portrayed on a TV show that from what I understand really gets things right versus how it's portrayed in this book really makes you think this administration is a piece of junk. Right. <laughs> and so now we get into probably one of the top three chapters in the book. We first have action with our assassins. And I think this, this scene, all these scenes with the time points and the descriptions were just done very well. You start off with they're in Friendship Heights, which is important to us because we lived there after college for a year, me and Mike. Uh, like, like we said, every time I was reading certain areas and I, I had you know, either lived there for a long time or been to these places, it was very nostalgia for me. Yeah, um, I, rem- I remember, though, Flynn was super specific when he opens Chapter 5. It's 1040 p.m. They're in an alleyway in this neighborhood, Friendship Heights in upper northwest D.C. It's a very upper middle class, even upper class, wealthier residential neighborhood of the city. And when they're describing an alleyway in the dark at 1040, there's an assassin there who's trying to drug the dog. So he, he calls the dog over to the back of the fence or realizes that's where the dog does his business and slips him some drugged meat that will uh, knock the dog out in a few hours. But our adventures, you know, back right after college, living in Friendship Heights and dark alleyways were just a little different. Uh, yeah. <laughs> usually didn't involve meat, but uh, cans, you know, aluminum cans filled with liquid. <laughs> Or walking back from steak and egg. <laughs> oh, yes. On the walk back in these dark alleyways from steak and egg. Yes. <laughs> um, all right. We then cut to another neighborhood. It's 2.05 a.m. in Calorama Heights, which also in Northwest D.C. Uh, is a lot more wealthy, however, I would say. A lot wealthy. Yeah. Calorama Heights is probably, would you agree, the richest neighborhood in the district? The, the biggest mansions. You think? Well, yeah, definitely President biggest. Obama. Right. Do you think there or like there's a lot of money in Georgetown too? So it, I, well, that's it, true. The houses are smaller, but yeah, I guess uh, in terms of the opulence, these right. gigantic mansions and kind of in the woods would be Calorama yeah. Heights. But you're right, Georgetown will probably have that same level of wealth or more. The former first family, the Obamas, uh, bought their house in Calorama Heights. Well, this is also where Senator Fitzgerald lives. And we first see him at two o'clock in the morning. And Flynn is very specific, 2.05 a.m. And he's coming home with his limousine driver, uh, quite inebriated. He stumbles into his home, at which point is the first time we see real action. The blonde-haired assassin is waiting in the wings uh, inside of Senator Fitzgerald's house and uh, is ready to get him and does what is later described as a very expert tactical move. Highly trained uh, commandos would be able to do this. Cracks his neck from behind. Instant kill. Right there. When we get into that chapter where they, um, you know, they go talk with a guy at Quantico or at the FBI Academy. Yeah. You know, a lot of these movies just show people breaking their necks. And I never Mm -hmm. thought about how physically hard that is and to be able to do that you have to be a really strong man you have to master that technique and for who this assassin is we know that he could definitely do that so that definitely shows a level of expertise and i like that conversation too they even say how so many marines are trained in these sort of tactics but obviously they can't do it in a real scenario on a real human being and so this particular marine in the story even says i thought i was ready 
And then when I was in the field and had to do it, I couldn't do it right. And so definitely this assassin in the story has an even higher level of training and experience that they've actually used this technique. But what's really interesting here is Flynn's exposition and backstory on Fitzgerald, the, who is the one who just had his neck cracked. And right before leading up to the killing, Flynn spends a sizable portion of space describing who this character is. He writes, for the last 34 years, he'd survived scandal after scandal and hung on to the seat like a screaming child clutching his favorite toy. Fitzgerald had been a politician his entire adult life. He knew nothing else. For Fitzgerald, such things as integrity, hard work, taking charge of one's own life, individual freedom, and the Constitution of the U.S. had little meaning. To him, being a leader of the country was not about doing the right thing. It was about holding on to power. He always needed more and could never get enough. And so a character that is going to be so quickly written off, I didn't expect him to die. And so that was the genius of the writing. I had about two pages of, oh, so Fitzgerald is this fat cat who's just getting drunk, who represents a career politician, who's wasting taxpayer money and living in Washington, the high life. And I think they even talk about women, you know, he's been loose with. And so I was thinking, this is going to be a key player. Is this even the villain? Is this who, the, who we're going to have the whole story to contemplate what happens to them? And instead, we turn around, the blonde-haired assassin is there, and he's gone. And in my mind, I'm thinking, what a good job Flynn did exploring this character and the senator. He really stands for something. He's an analog for a broken Washington. Yet at the same time, he's killed off right after meeting him. Yeah, I think that's one of the great things that Flynn does sometimes is when he describes someone that's either about to die or is, is a bad guy. He really fleshes out this whole backstory. We have this politician now. Like, this is... I don't want to say every politician, but a lot of politicians. Um, but like to to flesh out this character and then immediately get rid of him was was great writing by Flynn. We're back in Friendship Heights where the dog was drugged and it's 3.45 a.m. So the dog is knocked out. We learn that the homeowner is also sleeping. And so it's completely quiet. And the assassin expertly breaks in a back door doesn't make any noise, uses some very specialized tools, including this glass cutter. Really liked how Flynn, the, the research must have been incredible. It's a suction cup with a, almost like a compass, uh, a radius that you can draw to complete a full circle. And you pop out a circle of glass and without it falling, the suction cup catches it, uses that to reach in, open the door. The assassin slips a canister or a tube under the door to the bedroom and paralyzes the man who owns the house and here i am thinking we just had somebody's neck cracked and now this man is being gassed but just so they could fall asleep what's going on turns out they take the paralyzed man who was a financier so was able to own a house in friendship heights just like the wealthy senator across the street what we learn is we're across the street from another congressperson koslowski and then slowly we wait until 5 55 a.m we see Congressman uh, Koslowski come to the window, open up the window, it's the break of day, and the sniper from across the street takes the shot, second person dead. Yeah, I thought that was interesting how they saved the one guy, like they just, they don't kill the dog, they 
I mean, I guess they don't kill the dog because they don't want to tip off the the person. But yeah, I would just assume that these pe- the way the, these people are described, they don't care. So, well, this is definitely that, the, it was definitely the first hint that they were a different sort of assassin. And this gets brought up when they're discussing what type of assassin these could be or who's are actually perpetrating these things in the very next chapter. So that's like our first hint into like what kind of character these guys have. And I think it was important when we get the description of this man who I think was uh, named Burmeister or something uh, as a banker, someone who works in private industry and not somebody who's caught up with the corruption and greed of our politicians, which is going to play an important role of why both he and the dog are left alive and the drugs do wear off later in the day. We're not done yet, though. Still in Chapter 5, the assassins are on the move and we hear another team. I believe they communicate uh, by radio. Another team working with the assassins across the Potomac River in McLean, Virginia. And really great description of the neighborhood. I'm not too familiar with McLean, uh, although I do live in Northern Virginia. He, Flynn describes a park that they're in, and it seems very much like anywhere else across Northern Virginia, whether it's Alexandria or Arlington, um, a residential park, pretty quiet in the morning, but you'll have some joggers, some people walking dogs. And we learn the target is another Senator, Senator Downs, who is the chairman of the Senate ranking committee also nicknamed the Prince of Pork for spending so much in his bills and packing them full of spending that is unnecessary, but purely politically motivated. And he's been doing this for decades. The assassins reveal that he walks his dog every day around 6 a.m. And so at 6.15 a.m., we have an assassin who is in a van using blackface to completely conceal his identity and using it on his entire body to transform his skin and make it look as if he's African-American. And then he goes and stands suspiciously under a tree. Another small detail is that he actually wants to get witnessed by a few onlookers and bystanders. And so very, very subtle writing before the assassin follows Senator Downs walking his dog, approaches him from behind and kills him by shooting him in the back. That's going to play a key role because just like the banker in the house who wasn't killed, why is Flynn taking the time to show how the assassin wants to be seen by these bystanders? Right. These are highly trained assassins. Why would they even risk doing a close-up shot like that when they just took out someone with a sniper, you know, and, and later on they'll do another sniper attack. So it's definitely purposeful. They're trying to throw out the people's scent have them completely looking in the wrong direction and really good choice, really good writing, subtle ways to, to show us that. Can you take us into chapter six? Cause here's where we get into the world of law enforcement and we meet our first FBI agent and uh, CIA administrators who are going to be on this case. Right. So we first meet special agent McMahon and FBI director Roach. These are going to be important characters in a couple of Vince Flynn's novels. And I thought it was interesting, the description that Flynn plays between these two characters and how you have director Roach, who quotes him to say that he was a director that had been able to play the Washington game. McMahon himself, he didn't beat around the bush. He he told, told it straight up. And I, I like that in that character. But I guess in order to be the director of the FBI, you have to um, play the political game. And... You know, later on, it's mentioned that the president is upset that he had to keep 
both the director of the FBI and the director of the CIA because they were having troubles with getting a lot of their confirmations done. So they ended up just being like, you know, screw it. We'll keep them in place. We'll get rid of them later. And then that actually comes to bite them in the ass during this whole book because those two guys are in place. Although we know that Tom Stanfield will never let them let him be replaced because he keeps his own secret book on everybody. So there's no getting rid of Thomas Stansfield. But yeah, I, I thought it was a nice introduction to these two characters and the difference be- between their, the McMahons and um, Roach's characters. And then we begin, we get our um, the scene at NBC where this intern who's from, what do you know, Catholic University, my, my, my Salma Mater, where we met. Yeah, they get this ransom letter. Because literally the president and everybody... F- while they're having their little war council on the murders, Jack Warch comes into the scene and turns on one of the TVs and is like, you got to hear this. this well, what, do you, what do you think about the content of this ransom letter? Because, and if you, if you just permit me for a second, I was underwhelmed, and I still am as I think back on it. I was just bewildered reading this letter after very highly qualified assassins, and now we're hearing what they want and what their purpose was. And to me, we get a random smattering of policies that they're advocating for. A little bit of their political philosophy comes through, but it seems contradictory. Here's what I mean. The ransom letter is calling for a smaller government. They're sick and tired of the corruption in Washington. Yet then they offer three or four recommendations for national policy. They actually are asking, at least from my perception, the feds to enforce more legislation, which seems to to contradict their idea of smaller government, almost libertarian-leaning kind of sense of the, the rights of the people supersede. But then they say a 2% sales tax to pay down the national debt. Would a federalized additional tax be what someone with this philosophy of smaller government advocate for? They want a national crime bill to keep violent offenders off the street. And so I'm asking myself, do we not have laws already to arrest violent criminals? And then, and then finally, they're proposing these national policies get passed by a federal government that they're trying to hold hostage and don't believe deserves to have the power to make sweeping laws. I, how did you feel about the ransom note and how it's written? Yeah, I found the ransom note to be underwhelming. It wasn't like, it, I don't know, it wasn't written well. It wasn't you know executed well. I also think, it, like you said, it was very contradictory to me. Like I think when I first read it, it didn't make sense. And then when I was doing the deeper dive the second time reading it, it definitely didn't make sense. <laughs> yeah, the, it, the ransom note is, is a, a little problem in this whole story. I think what comes next in the next couple of chapters is amazing. We look at three different reflections on tragedy. It starts in chapter seven with President Stevens, and I thought this was a very apt detail. President Stevens is reflecting on the day and waking up to the news, and what he reflects on is this. It was almost two in the afternoon, and Stevens had yet to stop and think about the deaths of his former colleagues or even the loved ones they had left behind. He was immersed in himself and how the days, the events of the day would affect his career, his place in history. Just very selfish. I, th- I seemed he was he was the character that would have this reaction, not caring about the families, not thinking he has a responsibility to them, has a duty to the country as a whole, but instead he's thinking about his own future 
and how the history books will write him as a character. Well, right. And he even gets, he gets super scared by the ransom note because they have that last little portion where they say they have no problem in instituting more term limits. Not even, you know, no one is outside our realm, not even the president. And he's like, Oh, they're, they're coming after me now. And that's his first like instinct is to think about him. And of course, like Garrett's whole first instinct is, well, one, this is, they're trying to destroy our bill. Like we, we've worked so freaking hard for this. Like not even thinking about your three of your people just died, you know, you just earlier, the budget. earlier in the, the book, you, you commended, I think it was Kozlowski, how he said he was, you know, he didn't complain. He was a, you know, a, a good, he actually gives a compliment about uh, someone, which is a rare thing for Garrett to do. And then he immediately, they go into how can we take, how can we spin this to our advantage? They're trying to, they're trying to mess this up. So how, how do we spin it? I think that's a very politician thing to do in general is, you know, how can we, turn this crisis into you know what does he say there's nothing like exposure the exposure you get from a crisis you know and even even more to show president stevens as as a coward he buys into it hook line and sinker he oh, yeah. Yeah. garrett convinces him you're going to see a big jump in your approval ratings he plays off of his narcissism because we just a, a chapter prior heard the president reflecting on how am i going to be remembered for this but O'Rourke, how about O'Rourke's uh, reaction to tragedy? Both we hear a personal story about what he's been through and how he was affected by it. But we also see him dealing with the current assassinations, which he's not very sympathetic about. No, he barely says he's against it. Um, you know, he's like, not not that I think that, this sh- you know, people sh- should be running around the streets killing people, but can you blame them for killing the three people they did, which, you know, we're better off without them. He even <laughs> says multiple times. Yeah. Which I don't know. That is a harsh thing to say, but I guess it's real life. We are now at the end of part one with a scene at union station, which is also going to be one of the high points in terms of action of the story. And we meet a new character, speaker of the house Bassett. And he's having this argument with his head of uh, Secret Service. And Doral is trying to say, we can't protect you. With these threats, with the ransom letter, we advise you not to go out in public and not to take this meeting. And it's a short drive from the Capitol to get over to this office building near Union Station. Yet, Speaker Bassett says, I'm going anyway. And it's yet another instance of law enforcement being blown off, not being valued in their judgment, and he's going to pay the price. Right. And then, so this is another scene which is very well written, very well executed height of like the whole thriller aspect of this novel where they sneak in through the the Metro system into this building that's adjacent to the CNN where they're going to be doing this interview. And, you know, these assassins there, they, they think of everything. They realize that they can enter this building and look like, Oh, any person, any Bell Atlantic employee would be going into this empty office on this floor he picks a a level where he knows he can shoot down and no matter how tall he meant like because i think like they generally try to get tall people to do these sort of body protection um although there's one aspect of the assassination that i've as i was reading it i was like nitroglycerin tip bullet like is that a real thing and so i remember i googled it the first time i read the book and then I, i googled it again just to make sure that this I don't think this thing exists. I I texted a couple of people that are known, you know, gun enthusiasts, and they said they had never heard of it. The interwebs 
didn't really have anything for me besides the fact that people come on bringing up that nitroglycerin is, you know, a very volatile substance. So if you were to put it in the, in the bullet and as soon as like the hammer hits the back of the bullet, the nitroglycerin on the tip would just explode and you would just have an explosion of the bullet in, in the, um, the rifle barrel. So I don't know, apparently like this type of bullet has appeared in multiple, um, works of fiction. So but it could be something that the Mythbusters need to need to work out if you could actually tip your your bullet with nitroglycerin, because what he, he argues that that's the in order to not kill people. Again, they don't want to kill anybody, but the the speaker, the as soon as it hits, it just explodes. And I feel like even if it does explode, you're gonna have like shrapnel. And I don't, I don't know. That, so you're a better man than me getting into the research, but I was totally bought in. I couldn't even think is this a real thing because I was into the action. And when they were explaining why the nitroglycerin bullet, and I guess now was invented, but why it was invented in this story was so that it doesn't have an exit wound because as it exits the body of the victim, you don't want it to inflict further damage on anyone else, which these assassins knew would be a secret service agent. And so my mind was going with, Kennedy was right. She predicted and was trying to convince the FBI and the CIA and the White House that these assassins are not your standard terrorist. They're not someone who wants the most amount of gore and blood and guts. They don't want to go online and they don't want to take advantage of this and say they really wanted to make their point just sticking to the individual people and not having any collateral damage. So the nitroglycerin bullet, real or fake, it worked for me. I was like, that's it. Kennedy was right. These assassins don't want to kill or hurt anyone else. They really, truly do believe and, and love America. They don't even want to hurt its law enforcement agents. So I was bought in. And then the gas. So we learn that it is a team of assassins. There was a second one dressed up as the utility employee, but we don't know why they're in the underground tunnels still. And they unscrew something to the ventilation system and eventually the purpose is an escape strategy. So these, these guys were so well-planned to know they would have to extricate themselves and the Secret Service are going to be able to immediately, because of how trained they are, know where the bullet was fired from. They would be able to identify the height with the trajectory, and so they would know the building immediately. Well, right as the Secret Service tries to shut down the nearby office building and prevent the stem of people from coming in and out, there's an emergency and the alarms go off and everyone by the hundreds starts streaming out of this building and the secret service can't keep track of who's going where and people are trying to get out. They're trying to go in to find the person and the assassins are able to sneak out. I thought it was interesting how uh, like this, the assassin Vince writes about how he's able to change his appearance. And I, this is something that Mitch rap going forward in the, in the future books he talks about, and like, I guess this is something that, you know, real special operators would do. Uh, you know, they, they walk with a slouch, they walk with a limp in order to change their gait. Uh, so that way you look different than what you actually are. So I thought that was a, um, important little details that he puts in. Yeah. But Kennedy was right. That whole meeting that they had in the white house where she was sort of blown off by you know, the whole Stevens administration about like, how, how do you know that they're, she, she claims that they do it at a certain time. They're very, you know, they're happening in three places. So it's probably multiple uh, of them and they're very coordinated and that they don't kill any bystanders. Um, and so they don't, 
there's no videotape, there's no credit. Like they sent out the ransom, they had sent out the ransom letter like a day beforehand. So they, and then when they go to talk to the FBI, the guy at the FBI Academy, and he sort of says it's the same thing. And so she was right. Yeah, Kennedy was proven true, even though she wasn't taken seriously in the beginning. She kind of had a grapple on the situation from the get-go. And you had Stu Garrett, chief of staff, still trying to tell the president, they're terrorists, they're terrorists, we're under attack, because that will help with approval ratings in the media. And Kennedy the whole time was saying, all the evidence points to them not being your standard foreign terrorists who want to bring down the American government because of how tactical these killers were. You know, one other detail she put her finger on in the very beginning it was the eve of the budget vote. And so where the White House is thinking very selfishly, these acts are all to derail our budget. Kennedy says, no, the eve of a budget vote, congressmen are gonna be in town and they're going to be in their homes and they're going to have routines and they're going to have a schedule and they have to get up for work. And so she knew right away that this was highly planned by someone on the inside with the forethought and the training to know the routines of the government right. and who would be where when. Speaking of tidbits, you brought up tidbits, and since we talked a lot about living in D.C., were you, did, did you catch this? Hundreds of payphones in Union Station. Where the hell were those payphones? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I was scouring these historical photos looking for our phone booths or looking for our payphones. I couldn't find them. So uh, if anybody knows about payphones in the late 1990s, uh, <laughs> hundreds of them apparently in Union Station. I just want to know where they were. And now we like to get into a part of the podcast where we talk about the zero sum game, where we break down uh, who our winners and losers are for the section, uh, highlights, lowlights, glows and grows of this particular section. And so, who do we think won this part? I think we agree. It's definitely the assassins. It's the blonde-haired assassin, the exporter of death. The blonde-haired. I can't wait till we can talk about who he actually is because uh, he's an interesting dude. But yeah, they're definitely the assassins. No one else really won anything in the first part. Well, although she hasn't been a key figure yet, as we know, she's going to be a key figure of all 18 books uh, moving forward. I think Irene Kennedy won. I think her analysis when she's working and talking with the Marines and the FBI team and even internally with the CIA and with Stansfield, her read on the situation shows that she is going to know exactly who these assassins are and what they're doing. And so when we get a character like Mitch Rapp next book, I'm automatically thinking perfect, perfect match. Yeah. You know, it's like getting a DNA match. They are just made to work together and really get stuff done. Yeah. I think Flynn does a good job in terms of setting up Irene Kennedy. And I don't know, you know, when he was writing this, and this was something I wanted to, to talk about, like, one, where is Mitch Rapp during this this entire book? Because he's obviously a character we don't get. But when he was writing these characters, did he know that he was going to use them to then create this wider wider universe? Because a lot of these characters, if not, you know, Irene Kennedy's in every book since, um, and some of the other ones, you know, are in multiple books. And then randomly, some of these other minor characters make appearances later. Like I said, Stu Garrett shows up randomly in one of the books. Uh, Michael O'Rourke and, and Liz, like, show up in one of the books. So, you know, did Vince know? That'd be interesting. I, I wish we would have asked him about that. Did he know that this was going to be such a, a wide universe? And 
talking about building up the characters, I completely agree that it's a win in some regards. We're really meeting people who we're bought into, who are really going to stick with us. It might have also been on the loser side of me uh, for me as well. I felt the first few times we were learning about a character's backstory, I was really into it. When we learned about Senator Fitzgerald and my mind's going about what he stands for, what he represents in terms of American government gone wrong. Then when we learned about Michael O'Rourke and just buying into this young congressman who, you know, doesn't really care about what people think and isn't in it for the fame and the glory and wants out of the whole thing. I experimented with American government, but government is really back home with the people. I was all bought into it. By the time we get our third or fourth character backstory, we start hearing about Stansfield uh, lost his wife in a tragedy and it's affected him and what he went through. Then we hear uh, Kennedy. It was great to hear her backstory. You know, she has a Jordanian mom and a father who works in foreign, foreign service. And so she grew up uh, internationally working in embassies and is also fluent in Arabic and not just fluent as someone who learned Arabic, but fluent as a natural speaker of Arabic. Uh, really cool backstory there. But we learned she lost her father in an attack on the embassy in Beirut. And so just after three or four characters hearing that they've been shaped by tragedy, in their life, and then that's what motivates them to be as good as they are in their career. I'm just wondering if that trope was relied on, relied upon too heavily. You know, I think at least, and then later on, we're going to learn another character who is motivated. Perhaps it's the blonde-haired assassin who's motivated by a prior tragedy. Um, we learned that Michael O'Rourke as well lost his roommate. We were talking about um, the crack addict on Capitol Hill killing him. I just feel like that might have been a little overused. That at some point I stopped caring so much about these characters yeah and I'm, I'm wondering if like that was intentional because he didn't know that this was going to be mm -hmm. like a wide universe whereas like in, in the next books and in, in, in we, we don't get that with mitch rap like we we don't really know who he is and so it it gets we we do know but we don't know like every single bit about him and so that's that's the glory of writing this large saga where you you get tidbits of a person throughout the whole thing. Whereas if this was written as it's, you know, a standalone piece, this is it. Then I guess you have to flesh out those characters immediately, you know? So that's, that's, that's where I was wondering why, you know, did he know that those were going to be used later on? That's a great question. And maybe that's what makes Mitch Rapp such an enduring character or such a, a character we love and, and an endearing character also because we're not given that story right off the bat. You know, we have to earn it over the series of multiple books. We, we almost chip away at little pieces of who is Mitch Rep in the, in the beginning, but uh, we never get the whole story. And so maybe that's something that with his publisher, Vince Flynn realized in my next couple of books, I'm going to have to uh, not give away or play all my cards about the characters from the get-go. Yeah, definitely. I what thought... else was a winner for you? Something great. Yeah, overall, I think that the, you know, the research obviously was spot on. I thought that the details in, in some of the things, the description of the FBI, the CIA, the actual buildings, and some interesting, like, word choices that he does in the dialogue to show, like, character backgrounds. Like, I mentioned to you that I have a friend who's in the FBI, or a friend whose uncles are in the FBI, and, you know, the one gets very upset when the FBI are depicted in either TV or movies or whatever, and they're not they're called agents, um, but you know, they're actually called special agents. He, he wants to be called a special agent. And I thought it was very interesting how in one 
point, the president says, Mr. McMahon. And, you know, Garrett calls him, you know, you Peabody, whatever. Um, but then immediately the line after it, Thomas Stansfield, he calls them, he calls him special agent McMahon. And like, it's just those subtle things that Flynn does to, you know, instead of overly showing us the the character, like if you understand that, then you could see like w- what the difference between these two characters are. That's genius writing. It also goes to the point about the audience and knowing your audience. And so if someone thinks there's something unrealistic, they're going to drop the book right away. If they have experience, well, right there, Flynn is saying, look, the characters who are aloof and kind of knuckleheads are going to call a special agent mister, but he's showing we're in tune with the heroes, the people of the law enforcement who are using the proper lingo, who are making the audience members with experience in the know-how, very proud, are going to be the winners. Yeah, definitely. One other win for me was the action. From chapter five, we have the three killings, how well detailed and planned they are, and the whole escape strategy um, of how they set up in the building and how they set up the set off the alarm system. The action is second to none. And going into part two, I know it's only going to get better. Perhaps my favorite scene of the books is still yet to come in part two. Yes. So with that, we are going to wrap up and let you know what we're covering in the next episode. In two weeks, going to release our second part of Term Limits. We will be reading and covering chapter 14 through the end of chapter 29. So be sure to read along or tune on in and listen to our review of part two. And as always, make sure that you subscribe using your favorite podcasting platform. And you can find us online at MitchRapPod.com or using our Twitter handle at MitchRapPod. And as always, just let Mitch be Mitch. Guys, we, we're just simply two fans offering a discussion and reviews of some of our favorite books and characters. This podcast is not officially affiliated with Vince Flynn, Kyle Mills, or Simon & Schuster. But thank you to them for bringing us this wonderful world of Mitch Rapp.